title for this message is Learning from the Leftovers. And I must confess to you, I have preached on this text before, and I did catch a little heat, primarily from the women folks, because of some things I said about leftovers. So I'm going to be more careful uh, this time than last. But I have to tell you, every time I come to this text, I see it in a, in a little different light. Uh, I have preached the text before, but every time I come to it, I love it more. It's a beautiful text, and it's Mark chapter 6 through Mark chapter 8, and I think you expect that. I won't read the whole section to you, but it really begins for me at the feeding of the 5,000, and then we have the conclusion, the feeding of the 4,000, and I'm focusing especially on the fact that the disciples didn't get it, uh, badly so, but somebody did, and uh, that person is my hero. But as I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about that uh, movie uh, that uh, Mary Poppins, not the new one, the old one, but do you remember the, the, the story in that thing where the man says, I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith, and the other person replies, what's the name of the other leg? And, and, the, and the part that's funny to me is that nobody, you know, the guy doesn't get it until later. And all of a sudden it's like, ah, and he laughs out loud because it finally sunk in. That's the way this story is. Mark tells us about the feeding of the 4,000 and then the feeding of the 5,000 and he tells us the disciples didn't get it. And you're saying, well, wait, wait, wait. How do I figure this thing out? And much like our Lord does in his teaching, he doesn't give us nice, simple answers, illustrations, a poem, a song, and, and tell us we're dismissed. He rather lets us stew on it. And that's really what Mark does, is he lets us simmer on this thing because that's the way we ought to deal with Scripture. Rather than coming away with quick, simple answers, the Scriptures are worthy of our contemplation and our meditation to see more and more of them. Uh, and that's part of what this message is about. So let me just give you a couple of things that I think are important to keep in mind as we come to this text. Number one is that Jesus began to speak in parables in Mark chapter 4. And the interesting part of that is what he says at the end of, of that uh, sequence of parables. It says this, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, I have to admit, that changes my focus a little bit. I always thought about the parables as something that he did as a phase in his ministry. And, and so I, I would say in the early phase of his ministry, he spoke in parables so that those who rejected him and accused him of operating in the power of the devil would never believe. That's what Jesus said at the end of Mark chapter 3. Any sin, any blasphemy that's committed against me can be forgiven. 
any sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you light to understand the Word. So Jesus now changes in chapter 4 to speaking in parables so they won't understand, and he tells his disciples what it means privately. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus starts using parables like that again, only this time he does so so that his enemies understand he un they understood he knew he was going to die and they were going to kill him. And his disciples didn't because Peter was old quick draw McGraw. He had to pull that sword out and started doing things right there. So I always thought of that as kind of just a, a phase of Jesus' ministry. What this text tells me is that was the bulk of his ministry. Jesus was a parable teaching teacher. And so I have to now start looking for more parables. And they may not look exactly as the parables in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 4 or Matthew 13, but they're still parables. And you got to think of words like, like, this is like that, or as, as in the days of Noah, it was like this. You've got to see things where there's one line of, of statement, but it relates in a spiritual way in some deeper way, and we need to look for that more than I think we do. The other thing that I see in this section is that the key word is bread. Actually, literally, loaves. Loaves. Sadly, shame on the ESV, they dropped it. They dropped it in Mark chapter 7 when it says the Pharisees were objecting to the fact that the disciples were eating with unwashed hands. That's not what the text says. It says they were eating the loaves with unwashed hands. The loaves it appears 18 times in, this, in these three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, 18 times. Even, I wish I had time to do uh, chapter 7 and, and the whole thing with the Pharisees and the washing of hands and all that stuff. But do you notice there? They are so obsessed with their traditions. They're looking at the disciples' hands. They don't even pay attention to the bread. And the bread is the key. It, it's bizarre that they, that they overlook it. I will say this. Mark chapter 7 contains the most significant statement of, I think, all the Bible about food. You remember what that short statement is? Thus he declared all foods clean. That, my friend, was a game changer. A huge game changer. Now, Jews and Gentiles come together at the Lord's Supper to break bread together. Together, Jews and Gentiles, where those food laws separated them before. It's a huge thing. Uh, ask Peter. It takes three runs of a vision to get him to give up and go to the house of a Gentile. And he backslides in Galatians chapter 2 and starts sitting at the table with Jews only. This is huge. Well, I said it's huge. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about the other texts. So here we are 
in this, in this passage. Let's start with the feeding of the 5,000. But you have to understand this much. Food occurs before this. Jesus sends out his disciples. And you remember what his command to them about food was? Don't take any. Go out, preach the gospel, preach repentance, heal the sick, cast out demons, don't take any provisions. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that, that would make me uh, shiver a bit. No food? What's that about? I think Jesus was very concerned that his disciples learned from the outset that he would provide. He would provide. That's why I think in Luke chapter 5, when you have this incident with Jesus saying to the disciples, cast your nets the other side of the boat, and he got this huge catch, Jesus says, yeah, boys, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he gives them this huge catch, bigger than they've ever had before, which is saying, trust me, I'll take care of you. Oh, it happens again in John 21, right? Before Jesus departs and leaves them to carry out the Great Commission, he has another great catch. He's trying to teach them, I will provide. So now, no food on that missionary journey. They come back, and the disciples are eager to tell Jesus about everything that's happened. But the ministry demands were so great, they couldn't eat. Now, this time, it wasn't that they didn't have food. It was that they didn't have time to eat. That's what the text says. They were so busy, they had no time to eat. Hey, I don't know about you, and I know this is my imagination. I hear stomachs growling. Years ago, in our old building, we had a baptistry right back here, closer than this, and we'd have baptisms, and then I'd get up to preach, <laughs> and somebody pulled the plug on the drain, and all through this message, it's going gurgle, 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 and I'd say, it's not me, it's not me. Hey, I think it was the disciples, and so when you think about Jesus saying to the disciples, we're going to go off to a desolate private place so you can have some rest and we can talk, how much food did they take? They didn't take a blooming piece of bread. I think Jesus is saying, hey, guys, we did this provision thing on an individual level. I'm going to do it on a bigger scale. So he takes them off. You got what, 10,000 people? No food. I say that because when they started looking, what did they find? Five loaves, two fish. John tells us from a little boy. <laughs> None of the disciples had food. Jesus didn't call a food truck. There was no food. I think Jesus is running this on a grand scale to say, you thought that was something? It's nothing. Watch this. So here he goes. He feeds the 5,000. And that, you know, ended with a collection of, uh, of large quantity baskets, 12 baskets full of leftovers. And then John tells us at this event, the people would have loved to make Jesus king. <laughs> this is like the new society. Hey, any guy could provide bread like this. We're for him. He's our, he's our king. Jesus sent him off. Sent his disciples first in the boat in which he came. 
sends those guys off. Crowds disperse. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. Now Jesus comes down from the mountain and uh, no boat, no crowd, <laughs> just water. And so he walks. He walks on the sea. By the way, if it was windy and the disciples were having trouble, I don't think it was a glass-like lake at that point. But here he is walking along, and, and the disciples look over it. Can you imagine what that's like? You're out. I mean, you're sweating. You're, you're frustrated. You're fighting the wind. Nothing's going well. You wonder when in the world, if in the world, you're going to get to the other side. And here's this person walking, walking along beside you on the water. Well, they came to the only reasonable conclusion. It's a ghost. But it wasn't. So Jesus calms their fears, says, relax, it's me, gets in the boat, and the minute he gets in the boat, the wind cease. Now, by the way, he had already stilled one storm in the Gospels. He'd already stilled one. But now, here he is, the seas, the winds cease. And John tells us, John or Matthew, says they immediately ended up the other side. Well, that's kind of interesting. But it's what follows that that gets my attention. It says this, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Here's the key phrase. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. What in the world the loaves have to do with the sea? Walking on it, stilling a storm. What, what is that? Mark doesn't tell us. Now, if you'll pardon me for doing it, I don't normally do this. I'm going to skip the order of the text and come back to uh, chapter 7. And let's go to the feeding of the 4,000. Now, I think this is really interesting because it's, it's apparent that the disciples didn't really make any connections. They didn't see any spiritual lesson in all this, right? I think, this is me and my translation paraphrase, I think Jesus has said, these guys don't have a clue. I'm going to give them a no-brainer connection. I mean, this is a connection that is so obvious, so clear, nobody could miss it. I'm going to have another event. I'm going to be out in the wilderness again with a large crowd of people who are hungry. And that there actually is a little bit of bread and fish. Actually, more. Two loaves, more. We're just told a few small fishes, but that sounds like more than two. So he's giving them this rerun, right? And you're saying to yourself, 
as we read that. What's so hard about this, right? Get the baskets ready. Have the people sit down. Let's feed them. And the disciples say, well, Lord, what are we going to do? Hello? I mean, isn't, isn't this one of those moments you say, can't you get it? By the way, I, I, this is really out on the limb, but I'll climb out there for a minute. I think that the seven loaves and the few fish belonged to one of the disciples. They didn't have to go look around the crowd to find out what they had, and they didn't need any little boy to provide. I think it came out of one of their bags. And I'm not so sure in my heart of hearts. If I was there and it was my bag, I'd have said, send the crowd home. I'm eating my fish and my bread. We don't know about that. All we know is that Jesus fed the crowd. And there were seven, note this, large baskets. Didn't say large in, in, in the feeding of the 5,000. I'm, I'm guessing it's a pretty good-sized basket. The large basket is the same basket they used to lower Paul from the window down so that he wouldn't be killed. That's a big basket, folks. Big basket, seven of those big baskets full of leftovers. And, uh, and then notice what happens. Oh, this is so crazy in chapter 8. He's fed the, the, uh, the 4,000, and then it says in verse 14, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. In other words, this is after the feeding of the 4,000. Twice, thousands have been fed. Here they are now in the boat with Jesus, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of the broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, don't you get it? They didn't, right? They didn't. Mark leaves us hanging. Saying, what is, what is with these guys? And, by the way, I'm not so sure I know the relationship between the loaves that he's fed, the 5,000 and the 4,000, and what's going on here. Well, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the uh, creator of the universe, John 1, and the, uh, the God, well, I can't tell you that part. Anyway, if you've got God in your boat who has just fed thousands of people, why are you worried about 12 sandwiches? Call Jimmy John's. I mean, isn't it 12 sandwiches? Guys, it's just the disciples in a boat with Jesus. And the only connection they can make, it's a bad one, the only connection they can make is leaven, leaven they're saying, 
Leaven. Hmm, leaven. Leaven. Bread. Oh, lunch! We forgot lunch! Oh, it's a profound decision they made. And Jesus just says, oh, you guys. You know, we would be in big trouble except for the hero of the story. And that comes to us in chapter 7. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. By the way, she left, right? She gave up her pursuit of asking and left. She believed it happened. And it did, of course. She went home, found the child lying in a bed, and the demon gone. So here's a woman. She's a Gentile woman. She's a Syrophoenician woman. But best of all, folks, according to Matthew, she's a Canaanite woman. Get that! The lowest rung on the ladder, right? The Canaanites were the ones the Israelites were to go out and slaughter. What kind of standing did this woman have with Jesus? Well, virtually none. And again, the disciples, I think, are saying to Jesus, get her out of here. Come on, just come on. We've had enough of this. And I'm sure her persistence was irritating. And then Jesus makes this statement, and he says to her, well, the problem is you're a Gentile. And the plan is the gospel is to go to the Jew first, then the Gentile. He doesn't say there's never a time. He says this isn't the time. Now, <laughs> some people really get upset when they look and they see Jesus talks about giving the, the crumbs to the dogs, giving the bread to the dogs. I mean, doesn't that sound like an insult? Dogs was a word for Gentiles. It, it, it isn't exactly flattery. Do you notice this woman is not put off at all? In fact, she ramps it up. Why? Because she is the only one in our passage that understands bread isn't bread. That's what she's saying. Jesus talks to her. She isn't asking for dinner. She's asking for a miracle. And so he uses bread as an analogy. Can we say a parable of kinds? It's like a parable. And he says to her, you don't give the loaf, you don't give the bread to the dogs. They're for the children. Get what she says. But Lord... 
There's such an abundance of your bread, meaning grace, mercy, compassion, power. You got more than enough. Hey, okay, the dogs are under the table, but they get the crumbs. May I say the leftovers? The dogs get the leftovers. I'm okay with that. I'll take the leftovers. You keep the bread. I trust you. Mark doesn't tell us this. Matthew does. Jesus commended that woman for her faith. You see, she saw what the disciples didn't. She saw something that went over the heads of not only the disciples, but of the Pharisees. And by the way, Herod. Herod made some bad connections too. Remember, he thought that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, at least he made some connections. Disciples couldn't even connect anything but leaven and bread. Here is this woman. I don't think she's ever seen Jesus before. I don't think she's ever heard him before. She just heard of him. She shows up, and what she heard of him was enough for her to conclude he had lots of bread. We say that now about money, but lots of bread. Meaning, he's got lots to give. And consequently, I'll ask him for the crumbs because the leftovers are so great. She's my hero. She's my hero. She's the model for understanding Jesus' words. Now back to the disciples. They were terrified by what they saw. Jesus walking on the water. The winds calmed. And, well, it's not in this text, immediately arriving at their destination. They were terrified by that. And Jesus says, don't you get it? Don't you get the relationship between this and that? This incident in the boat, in the sea, that incident with the loaves. By the way, it's also interesting, he doesn't say, and fish. And, by the way, in John chapter 6, the, uh, the crowd made the connection. They said, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Bread equals manna at that point, but food. Isn't it interesting? Now, what is the connection? All right, let's think about it now and see if we can put some things together. Large crowd by the sea, hungry, and miraculously fed. Oh, in the wilderness. Incidentally, the word wilderness here in our text is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Israel in the wilderness. Ta-da! <laughs> Shouldn't the bells be ringing for the disciples? Hello? No. So, Jesus is saying this. There's some connection. What is it? Well, let's go a little further. And let's talk about a miraculous crossing of the sea and a stilling of the wind. If you go back to the account of the Exodus, you'll see the sea was parted, Red Sea was parted by wind. 
you'll see that, yes, the Israelites went through the sea to get where they were going and got safely to the other side. Folks, a parable is not supposed to match every detail. Big deal. They went under the sea. He goes over the sea. The fact is, he crossed it. What they were to see is, the one who is speaking is the one who is the Lord of the Exodus. Hungry people, wilderness, no food, crossing the sea. It's like, don't you guys get this? And and you see, what he's saying is, if God could miraculously provide 40 years of bread, you think it's a big deal for him to walk across the sea? No. you got to figure out who he is. And the same goes for the feeding of the 4,000. Didn't get it. Did not see the connection. So let's talk about that. One lesson is... Uh, if you've got the God of the universe in your boat, don't worry about lunch. It's just that simple. The God of the universe who's already just recently fed thousands of people. Oh, by the way, they had one loaf. They had one loaf in the boat. Even the raw materials were there, right? I wonder how many of us are like that. How many of us live our lives like the exodus never happened? How many of us live our lives as though our God is not the creator of the heavens and the earth? Oh, by the way, he made the stars too. How many of us in this day of inflation, high gas prices, limited supply chain, how many of us are breaking a sweat when the God of the universe is in the boat or is he I think the next question that we have to ask is are you in the boat are you in the boat (laughs) I mean the storm stopped when Jesus got in the boat but if you're not in the boat you have no reason to expect the God of the Exodus to be looking after you like he looked after them. So I just have to say this to you. Being in the boat means you understand your sin and the penalty God has prescribed. You understand that you are helpless to meet God's standard. You are helpless so far as getting to heaven. And you certainly don't deserve his abundant care. So the solution is, you got to get in the boat with Jesus. You got to be one who trusts in Him. Like the Canaanite woman, she had faith in Jesus. Man, she didn't know what the disciples knew, but she knew enough. He's the one I trust. Well, that takes me from the message to the method. The more I read this text and I see the response of the woman and the non-response of the disciples, I realize that this is kind of a parable. Jesus has put a set of circumstances down 
And they are remarkably like the circumstances of Israel in the wilderness. Are they not? And they didn't see it. And the more I've looked at, at Scripture, the more I see that not only does Jesus use many analogies and metaphors, the kingdom of God is like, or it's like it was in the days of Noah. Over and over again, he goes back to the Old Testament and he says, this is like that. Jesus says in John chapter 3, the Son of Man needs to be lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And some of us are moaning and groaning about reading our Old Testaments as though it's such terrible stuff when the reality is we ought to say to ourselves, whoa, wait a minute, there's a connection between what happens here and there. It was brief mention of the flood. Think about the, the flood. Here you have God's judgment upon the whole world, right? And the only people who are saved are the people who are in the ark. The judgment of God comes on the ark, doesn't it? I mean, it didn't rain everywhere but the ark. The ark went through the storm. That's like being in Christ. Those who were in Christ by, fa by faith, the, the wrath of God has been poured out upon him. He has borne the punishment. But we're saved because we're in him. Over and over, that's true. And so I, I really want you to think about the analogies. I, I want to say to you that I think faith reasons. And I think the problem with legalism is it keeps trying to shrink the meaning so small it doesn't apply. They do that with divorce, Matthew chapter 19, and they want to make an exception the rule. They do that with, uh, with Corban. And they say, well, I know what the Bible says, honor your father and mother, but mom and dad, I'm sorry, we have this tradition that we've added and it means that I can give to God in his account, which I can spend on my boat, but I can't give to you. There, there is a way in which Jewish legalism keeps narrowing the focus down to where it just doesn't apply to anybody anymore. This is the opposite. Every time you come to a text of Scripture, you say to yourself, hmm, hmm, I wonder, I wonder how that has relevance today. So here we have uh, um, um, uh, Abraham in, in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. God says to, to Abraham, uh, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the one that I said all the promises would be fulfilled through, and I want you to sacrifice him. How did Abraham handle that? Well, kind of like a parable, an analogy. Abraham reasons to himself and says, let me think about that. Sarah and I were promised to have a child, but we were as good as dead in the child raising department, right? And God gave us a child. He gave us life out of death. And he reasons, therefore, if this child is now put to death, God will raise him from the dead. And so he obeys. He sees the connection between one and another. By the way, when you start looking through the Old Testament, Psalms and Proverbs in particular, you will see so many. Like the deer, pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. We're not deer. 
But we can get it, folks, that we have a desire for God like that of a deer for water. There's jillions of those in the Bible if we simply open our eyes to see them. I'll give you one last example. I can't see the clock. Don't blame me. <laughs> I really can't. When we were up in Canada, we, uh, Jeanette and I spent most of our time building a, a safety rail on the stairs that go from Bill and uh, Marilyn McRae's house down to the lake. Last time we were there, we built the stairs, rebuilt the stairs, and they had, on one side, they had four posts, kind of rotten, and a, and a big old clunky rope that went like this between the, the, the posts. And uh, the kids saw Bill trying to make his way up those stairs, and it scared them to death. So we built a rail. So what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, actually, quite a bit. Deuteronomy says, when you build a house, remember flat-top houses? People lived actually on top of the house, not just in the house. When you build a house, build a parapet, a guardrail, so that you won't put anybody at danger. Asha is not new, folks. <laughs> God said long time before, prevent dangerous situations doing harm to others. So even building a guardrail is, is really rooted in a biblical principle. That, that glass you see up there above the wood, when we bought this building, that glass wasn't there. And the city said, oh yeah, you meet code. And we said to ourselves, gee, I see some little kid falling over that rail. So we built one higher. I'm saying to you over and over again in the scriptures, there are these instructions which have all kinds of application. Uh, I said I was going to end with one, but I'll end with this one. Don't muzzle an ox while it treads the corn. Ah, uh, the old Jewish legalist says, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I don't have oxes, and they don't tread any corn. Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he's talking about the servant being worthy of his hire, remuneration for workers of the gospel. And then he says, after he quotes that text, does God really care about oxen? <laughs> I mean, is that what God's all, all hot about, is taking care of the oxen? No. God cares about us. When he gives us the law that relates to oxen, he's giving us an illustration, a parable, a likeness. And we say to ourselves, is there anything like that in my life that I need to spill over into application? See, I think a whole lot of application happens on, on what you might call a parable level. I know that as a preacher, Everybody wants to tell us, man, you got to figure out what's in their minds and really lay it on them. Couldn't guess what's in your minds and how a text may apply to you, but I can tell you this. The God who gave the truth 
is the God who wants you and I to look at that truth and meditate upon it and conclude, you know what? I think that text, Old Testament or New, oxen or not, I think that text has something to say to me. Trust me, it does. And the more you look at your New Testament, the more you will find people turning you back to the Old Testament and saying, this is like that. We need to learn from that Canaanite woman. She got it right. God bless her. When the disciples were still chewing their cud. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this account. And we acknowledge our dullness very much like the disciples. Things are happening around us and we just don't make the connections. That woman did. And not only do you supply, but you supply in abundance. You're not running in a deficit budget like our government is. When you supply, it's heaped down, running over 12 baskets, seven large baskets full. Let us trust in you as the great provider. In Jesus' name, amen.